Revelation 10, beginning in verse 1, says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created, uh, who created heaven and the things which are in it, the earth and the things which are in it, and the sea and the things which are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And Father, we humbly ask just for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit now, even just to be attentive and to be receptive, Lord, that your Spirit might speak to us through what you have spoken here in the written Word of God. So, Lord, we ask, take away the distractions within us, among us, and just give us a heart that's receptive and an ear that wants to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church through the Word of God this morning. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, whenever God is saying things, he certainly, like any father, intends that we would be carefully paying attention, that we would listen and that we would digest what it is that he's saying to us. And even more than that, that we would not dismiss what God said to us, but that we would then do what he has asked, regardless if it is pleasant or if it's actually difficult and hard for us to do what God has asked. And we see this unfolding in today's text, and I hope, Lord willing, in light of looking at this passage together, that it will help us and equip us to do likewise in our own personal lives. Remember the setting in chapter 10 where we're at now. We've been watching these severe judgments that God has been pouring out on the inhabitants left behind on the earth during the time of the tribulation. And we've watched the unfolding of the severity of the first of six out of seven trumpet judgments that God is now pouring out upon humanity remaining upon the earth in the tribulation. It's at this point we now come in chapter 10, verse 1, to another pause in the sequence of events during the time of the tribulation. Just like, remember, we had a brief pause, or we might say an intermission, between the sixth seal and and the seventh seal, between the opening of the seals, there was the succession of the sixth, then there was a brief pause between the sixth and the seventh seal being opened. Now we have this same pattern again, where there's a brief pause between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and now the final blowing of the seventh trumpet. And that pause will last here from chapter 10, verse 1, and it will run the events described all the way down to chapter 11, Verse 14, where then finally the seventh trumpet is actually blown. Look at the in verse 1 as our text opens up. John tells us, I saw, he says, verse 1, still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire, 
He had a little book, John says, open in his hand, that is, the book was open as he's holding it, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot was on the land, and he cried out, verse 3, with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. So at this point, John in the vision now sees and hears things from another powerful person at this point who it says, verse 1, is descending down from heaven to stand there upon the earth. Now, there are some who want to identify this person as the Lord Jesus himself simply because of the language that's used to describe the person here in verses 1 through 3. You see the cloud, which reminds them of God manifesting himself in the glory cloud of the Old Testament. They read there in verse 1, of course, of the rainbow that it says was on his head. And remember, Revelation 4 said that there was a rainbow that encircled the throne of God. And then, of course, the very similar imagery that we saw back in chapter 1, where John saw the glorified risen Christ in a very similar way, who had a bright, shining face. They see the face shining like the brilliance of the sun and feet like pillars of fire, like the burning brass feet of Jesus seen in Revelation chapter 1. Yet I think, honestly, that idea is a very unnecessary stretch. And it really does not add anything to help the situation or the passage. In fact, between the rapture, what we refer to as the removal of the church, where Jesus appears in the air and the trumpet is blown, and you and I as Christians, the Bible tells us, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, which will then initiate the onset of the seven-year period of tribulation, at which the end of that, the Bible speaks of the second coming of Christ, where Jesus will then return, the Bible says, back to the earth. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives, where he will then set up his throne and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand-year period in the kingdom age as you and I return with him. The Bible speaks nothing of the fact of Christ coming down to earth during any time in the tribulation. The Bible describes Jesus calling the church, meeting us in the air, and seems to make no mention whatsoever of Jesus returning to the earth and physically being on the earth during the time of the tribulation until the very end of it when he comes back and his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives and he sets up his throne. That being said, keep notice here as we're looking in the midst of the tribulation that it tells us very clearly in context in verse 2 that this personage, which the Bible calls another mighty angel, set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So it would seem very out of sequence for this to be Jesus standing now on the earth at this time. John simply tells us in verse 1 that he saw still, as he's been seeing other angels, another mighty angel. Now, what's interesting as well is that term that John uses for another there is a specific Greek term that speaks of another of the same kind. There's another phrase that's used in the Greek that speaks of another referring to another of a different kind, like apple, and then another kind of fruit would be an orange of a different kind. As compared to apples, another of the same kind, an apple, but just maybe a little bit different, but of the same kind. This is the term here, another of the same kind. And remember, back in chapter 5, John described there a strong angel that was speaking from the throne of God in heaven. Same term that we have here for a mighty angel, just translated uh, mighty here in the text. And John here is simply saying, I saw another of the same kind of that strong, mighty class of angels that he already saw back in chapter 5. And John is simply saying here, this was another one of the same kind of that strong, mighty class of angels that exists among the angelic realm. Look, Hebrews chapter 1 makes it very evident, in fact, purposeful emphasis is given, that Jesus is not an angel, that Jesus is far superior to the angels. Jesus, in fact, created the angels and uses the angelic realm as his instruments. They are his servants and his messengers doing his work. In that very chapter, Hebrews 1, it speaks of the angels as ministering spirits sent forth 
to help you and I as the heirs of God's salvation. So here John is simply seeing another one of those class of very strong and mighty angels coming certainly from heaven and from the glory of the throne of God and the presence of the Lord. And therefore, the language is simply describing him coming in a manner that represents all the glory of heaven, coming in a manner that represents the very eternal Son of God who sent him forth as his messenger with all the glory of the Lord, with all the power of the Lord. And the language doesn't want to define Jesus, but it's simply defining that this angelic messenger is a reflection of heaven with all the glory, but yet a very strong and mighty angel nonetheless. Now, what's very impressive, you notice there, as John describes seeing this angel, he tells us in verse 2 that this strong and mighty angel had one foot standing on the sea and another that's on the land. Now, that's pretty impressive to be able to stand on the sea, to have a foot that actually standing on the sea like solid ground, the other foot straddling the land. The picture here is standing with one foot resting on both the physical part of the land, as well as the water on the earth. The idea is laying claim to God's dominion, that everything under heaven and earth, the land, the sea, God the Father, Jesus the Son, created the whole universe, all the land and all the seas, and now this strong angel is indicating that his king, the king of heaven, is laying claim to all of creation, this angel of heaven sent by the king of glory, in a sense, Standing here like this, I believe, is in essence a way of indicating this time of rebellion on the earth is over. And I now as a representation of heaven's throne sent by the king of eternity, I am telling you this belongs to my king. All of the land, all of the seas, the rebellion of man is over, and he now stands there indicating that this is what God is laying claim to. We also read in verse 2 of this mighty angel, it tells us that he was holding in his hand, John says, a little book, different term used than the scroll we saw back in chapter 5 that Jesus had in his hand, different term is used, but nonetheless, a little book is open in his hand. Now, we can tell from the context as we read through the chapter, this little book in some ways contains some message from God, some written form of communication regarding God's will, God's plan, God's purpose. It is a timely word from the Lord. It is a message written from God to mankind, something we might say representative clearly of the word of God of that which God wants spoken and what God wants people to hear. Now, in light of that, I find it very beautiful that it says that this little book, which in no doubt is representative of the word of God, that the book, notice, isn't closed, it's open. It's open. And to me, that's very beautiful to see because I believe that is a very clear picture of how God wants the message of his word to always be open to mankind. That God wants his word to be open, to be clear, to be understood to his servant. It reminds us that is God's primary heart in relationship to his word. Not that it would be a closed book. Not that it would be something that only those of special spiritual status can open and understand. And unless they somehow, by their great spiritual authority open and explain to us the deep truths of this mystical book that only they understand. No, God wants his word to be open to all of humanity. He wants it to be understood. It's an open book. It's something that God wants to be clearly understood by everyone, that God, by the inspiration of his spirit, has given to us such a large, think of it, written record a, a, a spirit-inspired library of 66 books given to us from Old to New Testament, speaking much to us about God so that we might know him, we can understand his ways, that we can know what it means to, to have a relationship with God, that we can understand what it means to walk with God, to know God's will. And I believe God truly delights to see us with his book, as we are this morning, open. I believe it pleases the heart of God to see his word open 
in our hands. Again, remember our very beginning of the book of Revelation, one of the things that Jesus said there to John, he said, Revelation 1 verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Right? And again, Jesus was saying that particularly regarding the book of Revelation because oftentimes people look at the book of Revelation and they think, oh, that's too complex. That's like a closed book, man. That's like a sealed, deep, mystical thing that humanity wouldn't even dare to try and understand. And Jesus said, no, there's actually a special blessing for those who open and read and understand this very book of the Bible that we're looking at and Jesus promises a blessing to those who open it and read it and understand it because God wants his word to be open to us, that we would be able to understand it. Just recently in our school of discipleship, we went through Nehemiah chapter 8, and there I love in Nehemiah 8 that passage where it seems there's sort of a, a spiritual revival that's happening among the people of God, and it tells us this in Nehemiah 8. It says, Ezra opened the book, that was the book of the law, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, he opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up out of reverence for the word of God. Notice that. When Ezra opened the book to read from it, the people stood up. If you've ever wondered why I have a stand on Sunday mornings for the reading of the word of God, I'm really not that creative. I stole it right from the scripture, right from there. They stood out of reverence for the word of God. God, here we are standing at attention. Give us our marching orders. Speak to us, Lord. Your word is to be honored. Your word is to be reverenced. And it says that they stood as he opened the book. And then it goes on to say in Nehemiah 8 that the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. They gave the sense. They helped them to understand the reading and the people left because they under, or excuse me, the people rejoiced as they left because they understood the words declared to them. I, I love that passage of scripture where again God's word becomes something the people become enthused about again. And it says, what a beautiful description, I believe, of just expository Bible teaching. They read distinctly from the book of the law, they gave the sense, and they helped the people understand the meeting. That's good Bible teaching. Read the word of God help the general degree of understanding, give the sense of what it's saying and help the people to understand. It says the people left rejoicing because they understood the scripture. They grasped what it said. They comprehended it. Jesus himself portrays this same thing in Luke 24. I love that section where Jesus says, all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then Luke 24 says this, and Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. See how that mattered to Jesus? As Jesus opened their, their understanding because he wanted them to comprehend the scriptures. And I love to see here this representation of the word of God there, that it's an open book there because I believe God wants his word to be open, to be clear, to be understood John then goes on to tell us in verse 3 that he then heard this angel holding the open book cry with a loud voice, and it was like as when a lion roars. So with a very loud voice that came forth like a roar from a mighty lion, there's this loud, clear message that is spoken forth to all the inhabitants, no doubt there on the earth, Verse 3 goes on to say, and then when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Notice plural. Again, Revelation 4 tells us that from the throne of God, around God's throne, proceed lightnings and thunderings and many voices. In the Bible, God's voice at times is described like thunder. But then as well, we saw in Revelation 6 that one of the angels, when he spoke, his voice was described like thunderings. And so here, seven, again, remember is the number of completeness. There's some picture of how when this mighty angel speaks this loud statement that he makes, that it, in a sense, inspires other voices to chime in, and a powerful message comes from God's throne 
who exactly is the messenger and how it's being spoken. Uh, we can only take what we have there, that something is coming from the throne of God where voices are communicating this powerful message like mighty thunderings to the earth. And look at verse 4. It says that when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write. He was about to record it. But I heard a voice, singular, from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So just like with all the other incredible things that John has been seeing in this vision, in all the previous chapters we've looked at so far, all the things he's been hearing, the sights and the sounds, once again, as John heard the seven thunders utter their voices, John says to us, I was about to document what I heard. I was about to record it. I was going to write it down. But then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, John, don't write that. I don't want you to write that down. He's forbidden here. An authoritative voice comes from heaven, stopping him different than everything else he's seen and heard so far. Everything else he's been seeing and hearing so far, he was instructed to write down, but now he hears that he's prohibited from disclosing whatever the message was from these seven thunders that uttered their voices. For some reason, he's told not to record this. He's specifically told, seal that up and do not write what you've heard. Now, look, God clearly had a purpose for this not being recorded in Scripture and that he did not want whatever was declared to be known. Those heard it who were in the present moment. John knew it. But John was not to disclose what God had shown to him and God, what God had let him hear. Daniel tells us when receiving part of his prophecy that on an occasion he was also told to seal up the words of his prophecy for a later time. Again, God does not promise, folks, and let's remember, nor is he required to inform us about everything that he knows. He's not required to do that. He doesn't promise that he would tell us that. Think of it. God has revealed so much, again, in this vast record of Scripture. God has revealed an immense amount to us about himself, about his will, his plan, and his purposes. As his Holy Spirit speaks to us and teaches us things, God has sufficiently given to us, apparently, in his word, everything that we need to be able to have genuine, adequate relationship with him, to be able to walk with him, to be able to know his will, and how to live properly a fruitful Christian experience while dwelling on this earth. God has sufficiently given us enough in his word. But there are still some things, obviously, God opts to keep unto himself, that he determines not to disclose or for us not to know or to not be revealed. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 tells us this. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Notice, God may decide at times not to disclose certain things. He may determine to keep them secretive between himself and maybe the Trinity alone, or maybe himself and the angelic realm alone, or maybe even at times himself and a particular servant, as in this situation. And he does not explain everything, and that is his prerogative, right? He's God, <laughs> and he has that prerogative. He has no problem allowing for some degree of mystery regarding his greatness, and let me just say to you this morning, it is a healthy thing as a Christian in a spirit of humility to become comfortable in faith with some degree of mystery in relationship to the awesomeness of God. God has disclosed a lot. Again, we mentioned last week, if I can remind you, Romans chapter 11, the Bible says some of God's ways are past finding out. The idea is God is so infinite, so great, so vast. His ways are far above our ways, and we are so finite and so incapable of grasping everything mentally in these human bodies, there will always be a gap. 
between God's greatness and all of who he is and our human understanding, and he may opt at times not to disclose everything to us. Even as a human parent, for good and proper reasons at times, may make a determination in their better judgment to opt not to tell their children certain things with their parental prerogative because maybe they think their child can't understand it, they're not ready to grasp it, they're not ready to handle it. So also is true with God to a much greater degree. And we do find some things in Scripture, as here, left unknown by us as people that will be a mystery to us that God does not share full clarity on, likely for our welfare in some way. Now, you may say, as my humanity does, well, then what you have to put that there for? <laughs> Isn't like curiosity what kills the cat? I mean, that's like, you know, your, your you know, friend or a relative coming in and saying, oh, man, just what happened? It was so incredible. You know, I don't know if I should tell you about it. And you're going, what? What did you bring it up for? Now, I want to know, and look, I don't know exactly what it's there for, and let me just say this. Sadly, even though it's very evident that the voice from heaven said, seal that up, do not write it, there are some, you can find commentators, if you want to waste your time, or you can find probably Bible YouTube videos of people who actually try and speculate what the seven thunder said. Uh, here's what the seven thunder said. I know what the seventh under said. And, and they actually begin in foolishness, and to me what's somewhat arrogance, to say that something that God said he did not want known, that they know under their private interpretation. And look, if that's the case, let me tell you something. They're lying. Because God said it was not to be known. It's something John apparently took to the grave with him. It's something that was to be sealed for another time. I think, if nothing else... This keeps us in a spirit of humility to remind us we're not going to know everything, and that's okay. And it's a healthy thing in human humility to recognize we are never going on this earth to know all the answers to everything. We're not always going to have all the answers, and to some degree, we can almost torture ourselves as human beings trying to get the why for everything that happens on this earth, trying to get adequate explanation and reasoning and basis for when the reality is the word of God teaches that we are not going to have all the answers. There are certain things that God will not reveal to us. I believe many of those things will become evident when we can handle them in eternity. When we have a glorified body, when we see all things clearly, we're not looking through a glass dimly as we are in this body of flesh now. And we should be truly grateful for all we do know and humbly recognize there's always going to be a gap between my limited understanding and God's full knowledge of all things. Look, beware of any spiritual arrogance that would ever imply that we know and understand everything. When you start going down that track or thinking you need to figure out or know everything, boy, that can get you to a place of spiritual pride and a condescending self-righteous attitude really, really quick in your doctrinal understandings and your perceptions. And look, let me say as well, beware of people who give the impression that they do know everything about everything and come across in a hyper-spiritual and superior way. That is a very unhealthy thing. God has purposes for us not knowing things because there are certain things I believe that we just shouldn't and can't handle knowing in our humanity. You know, as I was reading this and preparing, I was thinking of the reality that this was an issue all the way back from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, what got Adam and Eve into sin originally? It was seeking to know something that they weren't supposed to know about. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the devil comes in. How did he tempt them? Oh, see, God just knows that if you eat that tree, not that you're going to die, but then you'll know things that God knows. Don't you want to know more? Don't you want to know deeper things? Don't you want to see more unique mysteries? And, and God's just, you gotta, you'll be like God. And you can know everything and interestingly enough, sadly, what led to the fall of humanity was their 
pushing past boundaries in their human insignificance before an almighty and awesome God and trying to know things from that tree of knowledge and good and evil, and it led to the fall of humanity by pressing beyond those boundaries. There is so much, folks, God has clearly revealed in his word and by his spirit. My thought is, let's focus on the revealed will of God. Let's focus on what we do know, what God has given to us, what is clear, and seek to live in a knowledge of that. And to have an obedient Christian life and fruitful Christian behavior and not get caught up in hyper-spirituality and chasing after deeper unknown mysteries and experiences where we at times may have no sure basis that that's even a legitimate thing because there's no scriptural basis for it. I'm having a hard enough time continuing to know everything I need to know in here and certainly live it all out. I don't need to go chasing some mysterious idea or hyper-spiritual concept that I don't even have no guarantee is really from God or from the Holy Spirit. I want to stay in accordance with the will of God, and the revealed will of God is very, very evident by the things that he's chosen to share with us. Remember that Deuteronomy 29, 29 passage? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that have been revealed to us are what? That we may do them. My focus should be on doing the things that are revealed. And I think that when we do what is revealed, often and many times the unrevealed things become a little bit more clear to us as we're simply focusing on what God does show us. Now, to me, John shows a very beautiful, beautiful lesson here to us as well in verse 4 where he's about to write down what he heard. But again, he heard the voice saying to him, John, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. Here's a lesson John teaches us as a faithful servant of the Lord, and that's this, is he was remaining current with the Lord. He was remaining current with the Lord. And what I mean by that is the leading of the Lord in his life. Earlier in Revelation chapter 1, what was the instruction of Jesus to John? John, write down the things that you're seeing. Got it, Lord took out his pen, his quill, the vision starts unfolding. Now think of all we've been reading. And John, whoa, whoa. Oh, man, that, that Revelation 9 passage, all the creatures and demons. Boy, Calvary Chapel Gateway is going to love that one. Boy, just got to get that one. All these weird locust creatures. And, 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 and he's writing, he's writing, he's seeing stuff, and he's writing. He's hearing stuff, and he's writing. And he's faithfully doing this obediently. I mean, we have here nine, ten chapters of all this vision that John's writing down. And then after a long pattern of obedience, of writing down, all of a sudden he hears, stop, John. Don't write that down. I don't want you to. I know you're about to write it down. Don't you write that down. You've done everything I've asked you to do. Don't go overboard. Don't, don't write that down, John. Thankfully, John remains current, and he seeks to obey the Lord. And look, I think this is a good lesson for us because... We too, as God's people, we want to stay current with the Lord. Sometimes the Lord may have us do something. He may have us routinely doing something for a period, for a season, and then guess what he may tell you to do? Stop. The Lord may use you to be speaking to someone and speaking to someone, and you're thinking, man, this is going great. I'm speaking to this person. And then the Lord whispers in your ear, stop. If you say three more things, then they're going to get turned off and they're going to close you off because they're going to feel like you're trying to force them into the kingdom of God. And sometimes the Lord says, speak. Sometimes he says, be silent. Sometimes the Lord says, do this, and we're doing it for a season. And then sometimes the Lord says, look, if you want to stay current with me, now I don't want you to do that. And it's very important that we as the Lord's people pay attention and stay current with the Lord. I think it's beautifully illustrated in the book of Genesis as well, where God tells Abraham, go up to that mountain to sacrifice his son. And it says he takes the fire and the knife and they head up to the mountain. And he's heading up to the mountain right when he lifts up the dagger, remember, and he's about to plunge the dagger into his son, Isaac. God says to him, Abraham, stop. Now, if Abraham's anything like me, he's going, that can't be God. God told me to come up here on this mountain and to sacrifice my son. I've got to follow through. And the reality was God did tell him to do that, and God tested him, and God took him to a certain place, and God said, okay, now stop there. Don't go further. Now I, I want you to stop. 
and very important. It's a good thing that he stood current with the Lord or he would have made a bloody mess, no pun intended. He would have made a major mess. The type had been satisfied. God had seen what God wanted to see in the testing of Abraham. So again, let us pay attention. What's the Lord saying today, right now? Not what did he say a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. Pay attention to what the Lord's telling you continually. Stay current with the Lord. John said, I didn't write it. And then verse 5, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land then raised up his hand to heaven. He's going to swear an oath now. Verse 6, by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. So the angel now, notice, reverently lifts his hand up towards heaven, acknowledging the power of God as the eternal creator, and he's now swearing an oath. And he's swearing by, notice, the eternal nature of God. He says that he swore by the one, verse 6, who lives forever and ever. So he's reflecting there as he swears upon the God who never changes, who will always be trustworthy and faithful, and who will do all as he said. But he also swears by the God who's the all-powerful creator of all things. He says the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, again, declaring the mighty power of the rulership of God over all things, that God made everything, God controls everything, and he's displaying the power and the greatness of God. And this angel swears an oath to this unchanging, all-powerful God, and as he's speaking forth this message, it tells us there in verse 6, going on, that he said, he, he spoke these things, that there should be delay no longer, verse 7, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophet. So the first part of this message being sworn by the angel as a messenger of God was that there was to be, it says, delay, verse 6, no longer that there was to be delay no longer, something that had been held up or held back for a period because God had been forestalling it. It was something that was an event that was being postponed. It was being held off by God. But now that period of postponement was to no longer be delayed any longer. And the idea is it's now about to come to pass at this time. The set time has arrived and now it's to be fulfilled without any further delay. And again, folks, God may have reasons at times for delaying certain things. And there's a purpose behind that, and we shouldn't push past if God's trying to delay something. But then there comes a time where the set time arrives, and the delay is over. And God says, no more delay. Now's the time for this to come to pass. He's going to act. What's the question of what this was? Well, verse 7, notice he says, no longer was there a to delay. Of He describes it as the mystery of God, which was about to be finished as he declared it to his servants, the prophets. Now, whenever we see that New Testament word mystery, musterion in the Greek, it describes something that's always been a part of God's plan, and God has always known about it, but it had not yet been revealed to mankind. Like a statue that's under a sheet, and there's the day of the revealing. It's there. The artist knows what it looks like, but then there comes the day where the sheet is pulled off, and then it's revealed to everyone what has always been there. And this is the idea in the New Testament where we find this phrase mystery used, where something that God has always known that's a part of his plan but it had not yet been revealed to humanity. And we see this phrase used repeatedly in the New Testament regarding the church body, that Christ would unify Jew and Gentile into one spiritual family. We read of the mystery of Christ in us, that Jesus, by his spirit, would actually dwell inside of the believer, something unique to the Christian experience, that Christ would dwell in us, that the Jews would be judicially blinded and that Gentiles would be saved and then God would circle back and finish his plan for the nation of Israel. We see this phrase mystery used in various ways. Here he's talking about the mystery of God, he says, which would now be finished. The completion or culminating of something that's always been part of God's redemptive plan. The question is, what is this mystery that now is no longer going to be delayed and God is about to finish? Well, 
One thing we take notice, he links together the blowing of the seventh trumpet with this mystery of God being fulfilled. Verse 7 says, it's in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet, when he's about to sound that the mystery of God would be finished. Now, if you want to glance ahead to chapter 11, verse 15, we get some degree of insight of maybe what this is a reference to. Chapter 11, verse 15 says, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell again on their faces in worship saying, we give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So notice something connected in the blowing of the seventh trumpet brings forth this declaration that clearly speaks of this mystery of Jesus finally taking possession of his purchased possession, everything that he reclaimed back in his redemptive work, the earth and all of its inhabitants, and Jesus, as the verses describe there, eliminating his enemies in rebellion to him, rewarding his saints and his faithful servants, bringing a time of judgment, and then establishing his throne and reigning upon the earth. We're told as well that the mystery of this mystery of God that would be finished was declared, verse 7, to his servants, the prophets, plural. Now question, what did God declare to his servants, the prophets, all throughout the scripture? Well, each of the different prophets that we find in the Old Testament spoke about many different things, but there was clearly one main theme that each one of them was always receiving information about, and that was the ministry of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God. That not only would Messiah come as a suffering servant, but ultimately he would then have a glorious reign as a king. And all of the prophets, the servants, the prophets, were told things about the coming day of the Lord, that the judgment of God would be poured out on evil and sinful mankind, and there would be the establishing of the glorious kingdom reign as the Messiah would reign over all the earth at one time in the future. And apparently, John is describing here how this, in a sense, was something that's been delayed for a long time in human history. But now God says there's delay no longer. The time is now coming when this is about to be completed and finished. God's about to wrap up his eternal redemptive plan. Keep in mind, for many years, folks, God has been delaying his judgment on the earth and mercifully forestalling the coming judgment of God, which we're now studying here in Revelation. Why? So that as many sinful people as possible can repent and get right with God. Peter describes this in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, above all, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing with their own evil desires, saying, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, but deliberately they forget long ago God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of the water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Lord, what is the delay? How can you wait any longer? Why are you not just judging the earth and rescuing us as your people and getting us out of here? The reason is God's mercifully delaying. God's delaying as long as possible to allow the greatest opportunity 
for humanity to be saved and come to repentance. But John here is told at this point in the midst of the tribulation, at this point now, there's no longer going to be any delay. Now this is all going to be accelerated, and we'll see as we go through the remaining chapters. The judgments of God are going to be able to accelerate now, and without any further delay, God's ultimate purposes are going to come to pass, which are going to culminate ultimately with Christ returning and overthrowing the Antichrist and setting up his kingdom on the earth. Look at me in verse 8. Then the voice, John says, which I heard from heaven spoke to me again. And he said to me, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who is on the sea and on the earth. And John says, verse 9, so I went obediently to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. So this is now the first time, notice, that John becomes personally involved in the vision. Up to this point, he's just been writing things he's been seeing. Now he actually is told, John, I want you to go over to that angel and I want you to tell him, give me that book that's in your hand. Now, that must have been, if I was John, probably a little bit intimidating. That's a pretty mighty angel. And he says, go over to him and say, hey, give me that book. Give me that book that's in your hand. But again, when the voice of the Lord speaks to you, you obey in faith. It doesn't matter how intimidating something may seem. You obey in faith and you do obediently what the Lord tells you to do and you fear him above all else. And when we have heavenly instruction, we must do as John did. John went over, verse 9, he says, I went and I said, give me the little book. Verse 9 says, and he said to me, after he took it, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Verse 10, John said, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, as he was instructed, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So John is now instructed here by the angel after he takes the book from him to literally eat the book, to take initiative, to put it in his mouth, to chew the thing up, to actually swallow it and digest its content. And the book literally was to become a part of John's life. He was to digest it, to feed upon it in such a way where his body would assimilate the contents written within it. And notice the contents written within it, the Bible says here, we're going to cause a specific effect upon him personally as he ingested the contents. It said it would have a sweetness while in his mouth, but then it would be bitter or hard to digest eternally, internally. And John tells us in verse 10, reiterating, when I did what I was told and I ate it, he says, indeed, it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but it also made my stomach become bitter or it was hard to digest. So there was an aspect of what the message was God was giving to John that he was digesting. There was an aspect of it that apparently was very sweet was very enjoyable and satisfying. And think of it, the glories of Jesus and the heavenly kingdom and the new city, the glorious Jerusalem coming down and God making all things new. Again, what we have in the remainder of Revelation, John said, man, wow, that's sweet. And some of the things John was seeing were very pleasant and satisfying, but there was another aspect of the contents of the message that John said they were very bitter and they were hard to digest as he saw the further judgments and their severity upon humanity and the suffering and the work of the Antichrist, and that mankind still remains unrepentant and then ultimately suffers in the lake of fire, as John saw that, he said, man, that was pretty bitter and hard to digest. That was hard to swallow. That was difficult to have to take in. And notice right after he's told to ingest this book, the reason for it, verse 11 the angel then said to him, you must, John, prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So now that John had digested the book, he's told the reason why he was to eat, to partake of, and to digest this message from God is that it was to become a part of his being in order to prepare him to do what? To speak for God. So that after God's word became a part of his life, he was then more adequately prepared because he says, you must still prophesy, which is to speak what God wants spoken, other things 
that others around you still need to hear. There were things that God wanted to say through John, and it was through the ingesting of the Word of God that he was able to speak the Word of God. You might want to jot your notes Ezekiel chapters 2 and 3 because we find other occasions in the Scripture where God's servants were told to do the same thing. Ezekiel was told back in his day to partake of the scroll and to eat of it, and he said in the same way as he ate of that scroll, that at the end of it, God said to him, uh, son of man, feed your belly, fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. He says, so I ate it, and in my mouth it was like honey and sweetness. And then he said to me, son of man, now go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Again, we seem to find this pattern in God's word of digesting the word of God, and then delivering the Word of God, of digesting the Word of God personally, and then delivering the Word of God by speaking it to other people. And numerous times in the Bible, we do find Scripture spoken of as our spiritual food, like we see here, that we're supposed to feed upon and digest. In Job 23, he said, I've not departed from the commandment of your lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Jeremiah said, Lord, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became for me the joy and the delight of my heart. Psalm 119, the psalmist said, your words were to my taste sweeter than honey in my mouth. You know, the scripture instructs us that we are to actively partake of the word of God like a necessary meal to nourish our spiritual life to strengthen us in our soul, to meditate, to chew upon the word of God, to digest its truth so it becomes a part of us so we can have a healthy Christian experience. Remember what Jesus said? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And for you and I, as we feed upon and digest the word of God, do we not find a very similar experience to John here? Whereas we feed upon and, and digest the word of God, some of God's word, it's, it's very sweet and pleasurable and enjoyable. And there are times when we're partaking and feeding upon the word of God where our portion of scripture and our experience with it, it's very gratifying and it's fulfilling and it's satisfying and it is sweet and delightful to our soul. But there are other portions of God's truth that as we digest it, man, it's like a bitter pill. <laughs> And it's hard to digest what's being said because maybe the message is difficult or the truth is hard. But look, even if it's hard to digest, we need to swallow it still. And we need to do what it takes to digest it because that truth is essential even if it's more difficult and hard to digest. And the end goal, folks, is not just that we would know God's word for ourselves, but that we would be able, like John to then speak and deliver God's word to other people. Because there are times that we, like John, must speak forth what God once said to other people. And I tell you this this morning, the best way to be prepared to accurately speak what God once said is to know what God's word says. As you digest and feed upon and have a steady appetite of the word of God, that makes you incredibly prepared to speak for God. Oh, I could never speak for God. I couldn't speak for God. Feed on God's word, and when your belly is full, let God then take what he's nourished you with, I hate to say regurgitate it and give it to others, but you get my drift there. 